This episode is brought to you by IT Revolution, whose mission is to help technology leaders succeed through publishing and events. You're listening to The Ideal Cast with Gene Kim, brought to you by IT Revolution. If you haven't listened to the last episode where I interviewed Dr. Steven Spear, go listen to it now. If you have listened to it, here are the talks that I promised you. This is the entirety of Dr. Spear's 2019 DevOps Enterprise Summit London presentation, where he talks about the need and the value of finding faults in our thinking that results in faults in our doing. I then play for you nearly the entirety of his 2020 DevOps Enterprise Summit London presentation, which was held virtually. In many ways, this is a continuation of the lesson he started the year prior, where he talks about one of the most remarkable examples of creating distributed learning in a vast enterprise, which is in the US Navy 100 years ago at a crucial inflection point in both technology and strategic mission. Join me as we listen to these presentations together. I'll be breaking in periodically, adding my own running commentary on points that I found particularly impactful, both when I watched them originally and listening to them again now. Here's Steve. And I'm gonna make a very, very strong case as individuals and as uh, people responsible for managing other people, our daily objective function should be learning. And the more we learn, the better, the faster. Uh, that's great. And I'll just uh, build up that storyline, but that's the key point. So um, I often start when I'm working with some of the clients uh, Gene mentioned with a question about when they get to work or when they go home from work. And the question at the end of the day, what did I accomplish? Now, think about that. I'll, I'll, how, most people, how do most of you answer that? What am I hoping to accomplish today? Call it out. Oh, yeah, all right, that's the punchline. How, how do you normally phrase it, though? Right, because most of us phrase it in some form of what am I going to make and what am I going to deliver? So in a pharmaceutical company, it might be how many molecules do I synthesize today? How many tests do I run today? How much data do I process today? So whether it's physical, literally physical, or metaphorically, figuratively physical, we tend to think about the physicality of our daily activities. What did I make? What did I deliver? Well, let me make the case that we really should think about what did I discover today? What did I discover today? And, and it, Try this when you get back to work, whether people are logging in, badging in, punching in, whatever, however you indicate your presence on the job. Ask your colleagues, what do you hope to accomplish today? My bet is most people will give your equivalent of make and deliver, and almost nobody will give your equivalent of discover. And the same thing on the, on the way out. Now, let me explain why, what will I discover today is such an important question and an important objective. So we tend to think about our work having a value stream, and a value stream progressing through time from way early conceptual to um, actual construction, development, delivery, and operations. But let, let me suggest we're missing a critical dimension here, because our work doesn't progress just our work through time. Our work progresses through understanding. The reason we take on projects, programs, work streams, competency development, whatever else it happens to be, is because there's a need for which there's no solution. 
And part of the reason there's a need for which there's no solution is because we may not even know what the need is, and we certainly don't know what the solution is. So our start point is that we're ignorant. And now, where, where's our end point then need to be? If we're starting off ignorant in terms of needs to be satisfied and the nature of the solutions for those, what we want to do is progress and progress quickly from a point of ignorance to a point of um, a high degree of knowledge. Because anywhere along this value stream, we're plagued by what we don't know. And, and just you know, looking at the very end of the value stream, where something is even operating. So you know, there's a lot of reference to Lean and Toyota throughout the day. The reason Toyota developed these tools of uh, Pokio, Go, No, Go gauges, uh, Jidoka, Andon, et cetera, et cetera, is they recognize even after all the effort of designing operating systems and building operating systems and implementing operating systems and actually operating operating systems, there were still things that were going to go wrong because of what was poorly understood. So they wanted quick feedback on that. Well, that's true in the operating system. All the, more, all the more so, we want to know what's wrong early on. So long and short, we want to progress um, very quickly, very aggressively to where we don't know to where we do know. Now let me just make an aside on why speed matters. It's not just direction, but why speed matters, hence high velocity learning rather than just learning, is that getting to the right answer better, faster, matters a lot. So as Gene mentioned in the introduction, I've been spending time with pharmaceutical companies the last several years trying to compress the time it takes to go from one end of the value stream, where we really don't know, to the other end of the value stream, where we know a lot. It turns out in their industry that um, the rewards for being first with a therapeutic into the marketplace is that you enjoy something like 50% of the revenue on that therapeutic. If you show up second, you get something like 30%, 30, maybe that's you know, 15, 20%. And if you're fourth, fifth, or sixth, you've waited a huge chunk of money and about a decade. So that relative speed matters a lot. Now we did another calculation at one point to figure out what's a day worth? And it turns out the way their patent system works is that when you have an idea, you patent it, and you don't start collecting revenue until you have product in the marketplace, and then your revenue basically goes to zero when your patent wears out. And we started calculating what's the value of an extra day in the market. It turned out it was like $3 million per day to show up earlier than later. So in terms of um, the start, you're starting ignorant. Where you need to get is where you have sufficient understanding of what to do and how to do it, and speed matters a lot. Gene here. This was such an aha moment for me because he quantified the value of being fast in an industry like pharmaceuticals, where it's almost encoded in the way you play the R&D game. In the DevOps handbook, I quoted Courtney Kistler, who was at the time a senior director at Nordstrom. She said that the stage for Nordstrom's DevOps journey was likely set in 2011, during one of their annual board of directors meetings. She said, in that year, one of the strategic topics discussed was the need for online revenue growth. They studied the plight of blockbusters, borders, and Barnes and & Nobles, in other words, the killer bees, which demonstrated the dire consequences when traditional retailers were late, creating competitive e-commerce capabilities. Those organizations were clearly at risk of losing their position in the marketplace or even going out of business entirely. So in this period of incredible creative destruction that is happening right now, speed matters. Reed Hastings, the CEO and founder of Netflix, said, 
companies rarely die from moving too quickly, and they frequently die from moving too slowly. More ways to say what Steve just said. Speed matters, and it matters a lot. Let's go back to his talk. Now, let me um, give a couple of examples of where this issue of getting from we don't understand, we don't have a solution, we don't understand the problem, to where we have one matters a lot. So it turns out June, July are a period of great anniversary um, recognition. So um, this month, we marked the 75th anniversary of the landing at uh, Normandy, D-Day. Now, it, it's, it's funny, it's, it's almost four years to the day from the evacuation of Dunkirk until the return of the Allies on the beaches of France. The four years. Now, here's another anniversary. So next month, we're going to mark the first landing of human beings on the moon. Now, um, that was seven years after President Kennedy offered the challenge of, or the declaration, we're going to send a man to the moon by the end of the decade and return him safely to Earth. Seven years. So here's a question. What took so long? I mean, it's not like when, when the British and their allies left France in 1940, they sat around and said, well, we're really in no rush to go back. And the, and, and, and the French weren't sitting around saying, well, you know, London's kind of nice. We really like the bland food and warm beer. Um, it, it didn't take four years to realize, wow, this is really drab food. Just to make the point here, I'm not meaning to insult an entire cuisine and a, and a whole people, right? So presidents like to take credit for things that happened on their watch, whether or not they're responsible. Probably true for prime ministers also, right? So ideally, when President Kennedy made the challenge in 1962, he would have said, we're going to send a man to the moon and return him safely to Earth by next year. He didn't know about Dallas, I guess, right? But um, by next year. So why, did he, so why did he say the end of the decade? What took so long? Why did it take so long? Four years to come back to France or go back to France and uh, seven years to get to the moon and come back. Why, why so long? No one knew how to get there, right? In 1940, as the, as the British and their allies are leaving Dunkirk, right? It's not like they're saying, well, you know, we're going to wait four years to go back. We know how to go back now. We'll, we'll wait four years. The reality is no one knew how to go back. And there's some fascinating military history on this. There was a decision. Once the U.S. got into the war, do we go back to France in 1942? And as you know, what happened is that the Allies first went across North Africa up through Italy before launching uh, D-Day. And, and the history is fascinating, is that when the U.S. and its allies landed in North Africa, they were horrible. They had no idea how to fight a war. I mean, it was antiquated, it was backwards, it was disastrous. It was disastrous at one one-thousandth the scale of Normandy. And, and historians have said, had the U.S. and its allies not gone to North Africa first and learned how to actually fight, they would have gotten decimated had they gone to France first. And the same thing you can make the argument about trying to go to the moon in 1961 or 1962 versus 1969. What took so long? What took so long is that um, the president and the prime minister didn't have an answer to the question, how do we get where we need to go? And why didn't they have an answer? Because they were ignorant, the mother of all problems. Now, let me just uh, pitch this, because uh, the reference to lean and Toyota, 
let me offer that Toyota is an organization which has defined its operating system as the relentless pursuit of ignorance to beat it with a club and convert it into useful knowledge. Now with Lexus, they call it the relentless pursuit of perfection, but what they really mean is the relentless pursuit of perfection so it can drub it to death. Now, now here's an example. The picture on the screen is the uh, first product Toyota brought to the US market in the late 1950s. It's called the Toyopet. Anyone ever seen or heard of a Toyopet? Yeah, one. All right. How do you know about a Toyopet? We'll explore the, the, the unusual. All right. But most of you haven't. What does that suggest about the characteristics of a Toyopet if no one in the room, other than this person over here, no one in the room has ever heard of a Toyopet? Yeah, it was a lousy car. It was a terrible car. It was an awful car. And just to sort of quantify, qualify, awful, that the Toyopet to go uphill in a Toyopet. The odds, no guarantee on this, but the odds were better if you put the car in reverse. And, and, and it was more likely than not, on the way up the hill, it, it fell apart. And it, not only was Toyota making a horrible car, but it turns out they were horrible at making a horrible car, which I guess is good. It means there weren't that many horrible cars left around. I mean, if they were good at making a horrible car, we'd have a lot of them. And, and just in terms of horrible at making horrible cars, Toyota's productivity in the late 1950s was about one-eighth the world standard. Now at that point, Toyota management had a, a decision to make, a choice. And the choice would be amongst alternatives as to why they were lousy at making lousy cars. So they could say, well, it's something unfair about the economy or unfair about trade relations or unfair about employees. All sorts of blame things outside our control. But within Toyota, they came to a different made a different choice amongst their alternatives. They said, the problem is, we just don't know any better. If we knew better about how to design a car, we wouldn't have designed a Toyopet. <laughs> I mean, why would you do that? It's like, you know, you invite guests over and serve the meal that you don't know how to make rather than your, your specialty. And they said, you know, if we knew actually how to be more productive, we would be. We wouldn't spend eight hours doing what the guys at Ford and uh, elsewhere are spending one hour doing. So with the admittance, recognition, identification of ignorance as the mother of all their trouble, the folks at Toyota said, that, well, if ignorance is the problem, not cars, not markets, not GM, not Ford, but ignorance, we have to manage in such a way to get rid of ignorance. And they came up with this sort of mantra that everything you do, you're ignorant about in some fashion. And if you're ignorant about it, you have to see your ignorance quickly. You have to see your problems. And once you see a problem, you have to swarm on that problem to understand it, characterize it so you can solve it. And when you've come up with a, a discovery, right, part of your discovery might be the problem. Because we may not have known about the problem, but if you say, hey, wait, there's a problem over here, good to know. If you swarmed it and characterized the problem, may not have solved it yet, still good to know. If you come up with a solution, fantastic to know, so let's spread it around and share it and get that multiplier. And so within Toyota, a decision was made amongst all the alternatives as to why they were lousy at making lousy cars. They decided the problem was ignorance and the solution to ignorance was learning. Now the consequence of that was by 62, Toyota's productivity was equal to world standard. By the late 60s, it was double the world standard. So when Toyota comes back to the US market in the, mid, in the 1970s, um, they're selling cars way more affordable because they've doubled the productivity 
And cars, which are now, again, back to this terrible cars, terrible productivity, because they've been learning, the cars now are much more reliable by a factor of a hundred or a thousandfold more reliable than what's on the market. Now that creates this opportunity to not only sell subcompact fuel-efficient cars, but to sell mid-sized cars. Now Toyota, in that saying, asking the question, what explains our underperformance, so quality productivity, and then time to market? So by the time the mid-80s come around, Toyota's introducing new models on a two-year clip versus four years at Ford. Now think about this, you walk into a dealership and you look at a Ford and, and average age is two years on the technology, the styling, design, et cetera, compared to Toyota, which is looking fresh. Why would you buy an old, outdated car when you have the choice between the Ford Taurus and the Toyota Camry? And Toyota continues this cycle of demonstrating their ability to learn their way to greatness around quality, around productivity, time to market with new models, standing up new production facilities. Now remember, the starting point for Toyota late 1950s is the Toyopet. Um, by the 1990s, Toyota has a product in nearly every segment. In the 2000s, a product in nearly every segment in the U.S. market, and it's first or second in each of those segments. Now just a, another quick example, moving further upstream to developing new technology. Car drivers, the auto market, sent a signal to automakers that they wanted a doubling of fuel efficiency, be it the cost of gasoline, smog and emissions in Tokyo, Los Angeles, wherever else. And um, after a bunch of getting the answer wrong, General Motors and Ford both came up with the same answer of hybridization. And this is an offline conversation, which is better, hybrid, et cetera. But General Motors came out with the Chevy Volt. Toyota came out with the hybrid, uh, the Toyota Prius. Now, what happened after that? General Motors ended up selling about 160,000 Chevy Volts before ending the model, shutting down the factory, and laying off the workforce. Toyota took its hybrid system from the Prius onto the Camry, tuned it differently so it was really attractive onto taxi fleets, retuned it again onto bigger product like the Highlander, retuned it again onto the Lexus as a performance package. Now, having taken their product through six, seven cycles of retuning and putting it on 24 different platforms, Toyota to date has sold, again, 160,000 Chevy Volts to 16 million of its hybrid. Again, same problem. But Toyota managed in such a way to get to more and better answers faster so a difference in outcome of 100 to 1. That's, crazy. That's better than the drug industry in terms of distribu distribution of profits. It's amazing to listen to this part of the talk because in the last three minutes, he just summarized the entirety of the seminal 1990 book, The Machine That Changed the World by Dr. James Womack, Dr. Daniel Jones, and Dr. Daniel Roos. And Steve just projected it forward to its seemingly inevitable conclusion. When the book was published in 1990, the book had some dire warnings to the entire automotive industry, suggesting that if Toyota could deliver new car models faster, and if they could build them more efficiently and effectively, then they had an incredible competitive advantage. Steve brilliantly summarized how Toyota not only went on to dominate every major car category in the marketplace, but then proceeded to create entirely new ones and dominate those as well, far beyond any of the predictions in Machine That Changed the World. It is my personal belief that this phenomenon will be seen in software companies as well, as well as for organizations that need software to compete and win, which basically is, in this age of software, 
every organization these days. Back to Steve. So anyway, what does that leave us? It's if ignorance is the mother of all our problems, then learning and high-velocity learning has to be the mother of all our solutions. Now, I'll just tie this up to Toyota again in terms of where this is rooted. So the founder of Toyota is a guy named Sakichi Toyota, spelled with a D-A, not a T-A on the end. And he wasn't an auto guy at all. He was a textile guy. And he had this fabulous idea watching people in his home village weaving fabric. And the way they tell the story is that as he watched them weave fabric, he got brokenhearted when someone weaved fabric unaware that one of the threads on the loom had broken. And they had spent their entire day making fabric with a, a run in it rather than fabric good for clothing. And so he invented this loom, and you see it in the picture here, which when a thread breaks on that loom, a little flag pops up to say, hey, operator, hey, weaver, this thread is broken. Stop weaving. Restring the thread. Restring the thread and continue making a defect-free product rather than wasting your time. So that sort of was the initiation of this idea that in operations, you have to manage those operations. When you have a problem, you can see the problem so you can resolve the problem. Now, to really bring this home, here's another picture of Mr. Toyota later in life. And the loom here is one also that he invented and actually built. It's in the Toyota Family Museum outside of Nagoya. This loom, for whatever reason, it weaves in a circle rather than back and forth. You walk into the museum and you see this beautiful mounted uh, loom. And it still runs. It makes fabric. It's very pretty. And it says on a plaque, invented by Mr. Toyota, built by Mr. Toyota, one of a kind. Odd, such a good idea. And why is it one of a kind? That loom will keep running even if a thread breaks. Now, I spent about five years trying to wrestle with this. Like, if his standard is that the thread breaks, the problem is seen, the loom stops, the problem is solved, right? Why have that as the artifact dead center in the foyer of the museum? It'd be like if you went to the Edison Museum, what they had, the one thing in the center was the light bulb that doesn't glow. Spent five years wondering about this. But then it dawned on me, this is a Japanese, not an American aesthetic. The monument to Mr. Toyota is not the loom. It's the fact that there's no second loom. This principle that whatever you design will break because you're ignorant, you're wrong, you make mistakes. This principle that Anything you design will break, and because it will break, it has to tell you that you have a problem so it can be swarmed and solved and what's learned spread. It was so important to them, so important to them, that they decided to show not the loom, but the discipline, the discipline. Anyway, I spent a lot of my career, and there's some book excerpts and whatnot you can see on, focus on the operational side. But what, what I want to leave you today is to think that you can see what's wrong in your thinking long before it becomes evident in your doing. And so I'll end with a, a case here. Yeah, another anniversary, June 1942. The U.S. Navy sent a task force to engage a, a, a Japanese task force at Midway. Now here's the setup. The Japanese Navy arrived with twice of everything, ships, planes, sailors, airmen, etc., and a whole lot of experience fighting off of aircraft carriers because they've been marauding around the Pacific for the last couple of years. Now, that, that setup, right, of a, a, a force twice as big and more experienced showing up against a smaller one, or I guess it's in this direction, twice as big showing up against a smaller one, right? 
No, 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 it's twice as big this way. I got it backwards. Twice as big. All right, yeah. All right. there we go, the pantomime. Um, you'd think the one coming this way twice as big with more experience should win. And that's not how it happened. Now, the reason I have this book up here is uh, these authors uh, did a, a, a story, the Japanese perspective on Midway, written out of Japanese interviews, transcripts, uh, documentation, etc. And uh, after they build out this whole story of the Battle of Midway from the Japanese perspective, I mean, tremendous detail about what a pilot might have been experiencing in his torpedo bomber as it banked into a, a dive. They get to the end of the book and they say, hey, reader, so given what we've told you, when do you suppose the Japanese Navy lost the Battle of Midway, which was a disastrous defeat for the Japanese Navy? So you're thinking, I've seen the Hollywood movie. The Hollywood movie says three o'clock in the afternoon. There's a real guy, Wayne McCloskey, a lieutenant commander in the Navy. He banks through the clouds, sees a Japanese warship, drops his ordnance. All right, that's how Hollywood has it. Then you think, there's no way people write a 500-page, tiny print book and reach the Hollywood conclusion. That'd be a waste of time. So you flip back through the book, and you try and think, maybe it's earlier on uh, the 4th of June. Maybe it's late May, because the Japanese fleet was late and discombobulated, leaving its... Uh, harbors and ports around Tokyo in late May. But then, oh yeah, maybe late May. So you get to the back of the book after you flip through the front of the book looking for the answer to the question, when do they lose? And you flip it and it says, dear reader, at, by this point you probably flipped through the book looking for an answer and arrived at May 27th is your answer. You're wrong. The Japanese late Navy lost the Battle of Midway no later than 1929. Now at that point you're saying, don't screw with me, 1929 is not even in the book. But then they go on to explain, by 1929, the Japanese admirals had given a lot of thought, a lot of thought, a lot of thought to how you fight with aircraft carriers in the Pacific. And once they calcified and said, how, we know how this is going to happen, everything else flowed out of that, how they designed their, uh, their ships and their planes, how they trained their crews, how they planned uh, uh, reconnaissance and patrols, and how they planned for the Battle of Midway. Now the authors go on to say they had an opportunity. They had an opportunity to find the flaw in their thinking, but they missed it. Because prior to the Battle of Midway, the Japanese Admiralty ran a war game. You know, tabletop little wooden ships, very cute like in the movies, right? And imagine standing at that end of the Japanese Admirals. And at this end, there's some junior officer who's got hit the battle plan and he's standing in for the Americans. So they start running the battle plan in this war game. And after a few rounds of this, the referee stops the war game. He stops it because he says, hey, the junior officer is not following the battle plan as it's written. Now, why do you suppose he really stopped the war game? Yeah, the junior guy's winning. He's beating the admirals. Now, at that point, what should the admirals have done? They should have said, hey, you know, maybe, all right, but what do you think they actually did? Yeah, that's right, they fired the junior guy. They found another junior guy. And, and, and the way this book tells the story, they go through like one junior officer, a more junior officer, a senior enlisted, junior enlisted, seaman recruit, some dude selling noodles off the street of Tokyo. <laughs> but it turns out anyone who reads the battle plan looks at the table and says, you know, if I did that with half of everything, I'm gonna get crushed, I'm gonna do something different. But anyway, what happens is they go with their battle plan and the thing about what a battle plan or any plan is, is basically a guess of the future. And they had feedback that their guess was not such a good guess. 
But they said, we're going to stick to our guests and re reject the feedback. So they go to Midway and uh, they get feedback from Admiral Nimitz. Now, what's Admiral Nimitz's experience in the um, preceding years? So the U.S. Navy leadership, like the Japanese Navy leadership, had gone through a similar exercise of battle plans and war games. But on the U.S. side, they would design a battle plan, run a war game, maybe with a comparable junior officer on this side. But if the battle plan went contrary to the plan, they asked the junior officer, hey, what'd you see wrong? And they went through these cycles of updating and updating and updating based on the feedback. And in fact, they took this as far as when they were running actual exercises, real ships, real planes, real people out in the ocean, which is a dangerous place. You'd think at that point, someone might have said, hey, Admiral Nimitz, you know, it's fine to mess around on a tabletop with a wooden ship. But when we're out at sea, we got to rehearse the battle plan because, you know, now it counts. That was an alternative. But the choice they actually made was when they were running real exercises. At the end of the day, the senior leadership would stand not in, you know, not hide in a wardroom below deck. They'd stand on the flight deck and debrief on the war game, on the exercise. Not only would they do that, they'd do it publicly in front of the 700,000 officers who participated with the officers in the back saying, yo, Admiral, I understand your thinking. Let me tell you something. You're thinking? It sucks. <laughs> we tried it. It's terrible. With Admiral Nimitz dutifully taking notes. And uh, by the end of the, after the war, Admiral Nimitz reflects, he said, of all the things that happened in the Pacific, as horrible and terrible as it was, basically there were no surprises because we use this early stage planning to find out all the flaws in our thinking aggressively, aggressively, aggressively um, before it became flaws in our doing. So let me leave you guys with some homework on this one. Is that um, undoubtedly there are people in this room, actually all of you, right, who are planning something, designing something, conceptualizing something. And my bet is that as you're going through this process, you're getting with your colleagues and trying to get the plan, the design, the conceptualization right. And you're working hard and hard and you're budgeting time to get it right. And my guess is that for a lot of the things you're planning and designing, you're not committing, dedicating time early often to stand up and say, hey, guys, gals, gang, this is what I've got so far. Tell me what's wrong. Tell me what's wrong. So your homework, your homework is to take your experience right now and convert it from one which is more like the Japanese preparation for Midway, which is, oh, the, I, the point of the plan, the point of the design is to get buy-in, understanding. We have to get the minions to understand us as opposed to the point of the plan, the point of the design is to garner feedback on what we think we know so we can get it better and better and better. So real, real quick, just on, on, in terms of uh, uh, making a choice on a different alternative to managing versus, uh, and, and the, the importance of high-velocity learning and high-velocity outcomes. So um, coming out of World War II, the U.S. and the Soviets both had this idea of putting nuclear power on board submarines to you know, dramatically increase the uh, effectiveness lethality of that weapons platform. The U.S. launched their first uh, boat in 1955, the Nautilus. And since the launch of the Nautilus in 1955, the U.S. experience with nuclear power has been absolutely perfect. There's been no environmental harm, no human injury due to reactor failure on a U.S. warship. Um, other things go wrong. By, by the way, the British Navy, you guys were testing out a Trident missile last year and uh, got spun around. You launched it at Disneyland. 
Um, there are folks that, from Disney in the room, so they're a little ticked off by that. But anyway, but the reactor was fine. The reactor was fine. Um, anyway, this is the Soviet experience. This is the Soviet experience with uh, nuclear power and submarines in general. About every two years, the Soviet Navy has lost a, uh, or lost a submarine, its crew, and did terrible damage to the environment. And this is a very small sampling of the record since the 1950s. Now, you ask the, diff you ask the question, what's the difference? Well, the start point was the same, a huge amount of ignorance, huge amount of ignorance about the science and technology, engineering, et cetera, related to atomic power. The end point was, the desired end point was the same, which was a sufficient level of understanding. Um, one level of understanding was achieved, and in the other case, it wasn't. The only thing left as an explanation is how these programs were managed. And um, this character here is the fellow who is Admiral Rickover, the father of the U.S nuclear program, and given the choice of defining adversaries, he could have defined his adversary as the Soviet Navy. He could have defined his adversary as the science, technology, engineering of atomic power. But instead what he did was he defined as his adversary, his adversary, the lack of understanding. And I'll just talk to this picture in a second. So Admiral Rickover tried to cultivate a culture in his program where if you didn't understand something, you raised a hand. And I, chapter five has some cases on this, but just talk because I'm kind of deliberately imitating him. Here's the guy as an admiral. He's entitled, like here in the UK or at home, admirals are entitled to wear a ton of bling on their uniform. But he's wearing a gray suit. Not only is he wearing a gray suit, it's on the day the Nautilus, the first submarine, is being commissioned. It begs the question, why doesn't he show up in a uniform with all the navy blue and gold trimming this and that? And what Rickover realized is that his real adversary is the inability, discomfort of people to raise their hand and say, yo, I don't understand. And so one of the many things he did was he started showing up to work in a gray suit. The idea being that if he shows up in a gray suit, people, other people will show up in gray suits. And it'll at least address a little bit the Pavlovian response of, oh, there's someone more senior to me. I don't want to look stupid. Oh, there's someone more junior to me. I don't want to look stupid. Oh, there's a uniform guy. They're so macho and heroic. I don't want to look stupid as a civilian or vice versa. And this is just one of many techniques. But the key point is, is Rick over defined the problem as behavioral. The technical stuff was a consequence of behavioral. The uh, getting into the market, as it were, Technical, behavioral, the Soviets, right? Having the ship at sea because of technical, but because of behavioral. So anyway, the storyline here is when we look at it, the few organizations which have utterly, utterly crushed their competition is because people managing other people, people like you have decided that the objective function every day has to be discovering something new. And the way to do that is expose our thinking, expose our thinking to feedback, which tells us our thinking is wrong before it becomes wrong in our doing. All right, so here's my ask for help. As you can see, uh, my basic thinking goes something like this, is to avoid having a flood, grab the leak. And before you have to grab the leak, which is a hard problem to solve, Notice when your pipes are sweating, and if you can solve the problem of the sweating pipe, you don't have the leaking pipe, and if you can solve the leaking pipe, you don't have the flood. And so uh, what we've done is we've created a portable andon, because the problem we encountered, the problem we recognized is that it's one thing you got a moving assembly line, someone works in about the same, you know, 10 foot left, 10 foot right space, but when you have a workforce like 
nursing, life field service crews, et cetera, which, you know, people working in amusement parks where people are out and about distributing mobile. The person with the problem has this difficulty that they've got their work and it's a huge overburden to stop their work, go find a computer, log in, send a ticket off to someone else. So what ends up happening, the person with the problem is unseen, unheard, voiceless, and the people with solutions who may be somewhere else they're deaf and blind to what's actually going on in their organization. So what we did is we said, well, you know, you guys are IT geniuses. There's got to be a solution. So um, what we did is we built an app. The app sits on a mobile device um, so the person in the field can quickly, with you know, 10 seconds, say, I've got a problem that immediately goes to the central service, which is supposed to be supportive of solutions, giving real-time, very rich visibility to people managing systems as to what's going wrong and how quickly it's being addressed. So uh, put it in a factory in there, uptime went up. We put it in a hospital connecting pediatric inpatient care to pharmacy. Their rate of missing medication went down by 30% because of this rich, real-time visibility of information. So here's the um, ask of all of you which is uh, in your own organizations. You got anybody who might want to partner with us and try this out. Within your organization is maybe 30 to about 300 people, you know, fairly small, not gigantic, but more than two or three. Um, folks who are not computer bound, which means they're disconnected often from the rest of the organization, out mobile distributed, where they need help from what might be a centralized service, which may not be anywhere close to them. Gene here again. To learn about what Steve and team have been working on, go to ctosolve.com, which will be in the show notes. So that was his presentation from DevOps Enterprise Summit London 2019. Here is a presentation he just gave at the DevOps Enterprise Summit London 2020, which was held virtually. He talks about one of the most remarkable and historic examples of creating a dynamic learning organization at scale in the U.S. Navy. We're going to jump to the beginning of his presentation, where he talks about the defeat of the Japanese Imperial Navy at the Battle of Midway. I deleted some portions of what we just heard, so we can quickly get to the point where Steve makes an even more surprising conclusion of when the Battle of Midway was lost for the Japanese Navy. That it wasn't in 1942, nor was it in 1929 like he suggested in the last talk, but even decades earlier than that. Here's Steve. June 1942 should have been a source of huge celebration for the Imperial Japan Navy. And why is that? Because December 1941 utterly stunk for the United States Navy. The Japanese Navy had attacked at Pearl Harbor, surprise attack, destroyed Battleship Row, and immediately after that go on a wave of conquest through the Pacific. Guam, Bataan, Singapore, this place, that place. And uh, June 42, this was going to be the coup de grace. The Japanese Navy was going to sail out from Japan out to Midway Island, start bombarding the heck out of that island, lure the U.S. Navy out of uh, Pearl Harbor, and sneak attack them there and uh, destroy the remainder of the U.S. force. This time the aircraft carriers, now that the battleships were um, still burning. Well, anyway, it didn't work out exactly that way for the Japanese. And in rather than June 42 being that momentous triumph, it actually turned to be pivotal and after the defeat suffered at uh, Midway Island by the Japanese Navy, they couldn't wage a meaningful offensive for the remainder of the war. Now, that's not to say that it was easy going for the U.S. Navy. Uh, Japan staged uh, a brutal, bloody, prolonged retreating defense, but it was retreating defense. And so you might ask yourself the question, 
So, you know, with these uh, great plans that were being cooked up and operationalized in June 1942, what went wrong and when did it go wrong? Now, um, let's think about it. So anyway, having flipped through the, all the way to the beginning of the book, you go to the back of the book again. And the authors, it's kind of funny, right? They, they go from this very sort of dry prose to almost slapstick. They say, hey, reader, I bet you um, went all the way to the start of the book and found uh, May as uh, when the Japanese Navy lost this because they got discombobulated. And guess what? The Japanese Navy lost the Battle of Midway no later than 1929. And like, what the, because 1929 is not even in the book. But here's the thing. If I, you know, my reaction to that book was 1929. What the, all right, let me offer another offer. Is that the Japanese Navy may have lost by 1929, but the U.S. Navy won by 1895. Now you're probably going, oh, what the. So anyway, let me explain that. In the late 1800s, the United States Navy was faced with huge, huge change, both strategic and technological. And as I start talking through this case, start thinking about, all the strategic and technological changes we have in 2020. So you got your um, um, Internet of Things, you got your Industry 4.0, you got your G5, you got your AI, you got machine learning, got data mining, and uh, all that lumped together. I mean, how often do you see in an article where the headline is basically, ah, throw your past away, your history hasn't been written, you're going to have to completely rethink not only what you do and how you do it. Well, anyway... That was a real problem for the U.S. Navy in about 1895, and I'll tell you why. Up through, up through the mid-1800s, the United States had a very continental focus. You know, you started off with uh, 13 diminutive weak colonies on the uh, Atlantic coast, but uh, you got the Louisiana Purchase, you got westward expansion, you got Lewis and Clark finding, finding that the other people knew it was there. They found it for themselves, the Pacific Ocean on and on. But by 1900, just to scale this, by 1900, of the 50 states in the union we have today, and you can peel off Hawaii and Alaska, so we're down to 48. So of the 48 continental states, 45 were already in the union, and Oklahoma was a territory, so it wasn't quite a state yet, but was on the way. And so by uh, the time you get to 1900, you have the United States sort of having solved the manifest destiny problem and the continental expansion problem, and it starts thinking itself less and less is only a continental power and more and more is also a transoceanic power. Now, what does that mean for the Navy? Well, the Navy's got to re redefine its job because its, its job had been um, coastal defense. And now it has to start thinking about how it expands itself transoceanically, um, you know, big oceans, the Pacific in particular. And uh, the thing is, it's more than just the distance involved because in the other side of the Pacific Ocean, Guess what? The Japanese Navy is going through a same similar kind of self-reflection because Japan had been in a self-imposed isolation for the better part of what, 400 years. And coming into the late 1800s, Meiji Restoration, all that, they started thinking in terms, well, how can we be a world power transoceanic? So one of the ways they started uh, that exploration was kicking the stuffings out of the Russians in 1904, 1905. So anyway, you have the United States Navy now having to think about projecting power and protecting interests over the Pacific. And on the other side of the Pacific is a potential adversary somewhere, someday about something. All right, now that, that's just a strategic element, changing um, what we do. But there was also a, a huge amount of um, technological change that the U.S. Navy had to worry about. Now, he, here's this is a great side-by-side -side comparison. Two battleships, right? And say, oh, battleship, battleship, what? Right. But take a look on the left-hand side of your screen. USS Texas, commissioned 1892. Maybe Keel Lang was 18. But 1892 is a good enough guess. 
1892. You take a close look, you see, all right, so she's got a steam-based power plant. She's got um, um, a steel hull. You start looking at where the guns are. The guns are in exactly the same places on the USS Constitution or, you know, what uh, Admiral Nelson might have fought at uh, the Battle, Battle of Trafalgar. It's side-mounted. And the tactics to fight with this ship and fight against ships like that, it hadn't really much advanced. Yeah, you had more control where you went. You didn't have to depend on the wind quite so much. But kind of the same tactics, strategy, et cetera, would have applied in 1892 on board the USS Texas as in uh, 1792 on comparable ship. Now, look on the right-hand side of the slide here. you got the USS Indiana. Three years younger, that's it. But you know the big difference, that the Indiana, she's got gun turrets. They say, oh, what's the big difference? And the difference is huge, huge. Because when you have side-mounted guns, what can you do? You just kind of try and, you know, cross the T, as it were. But um, turreted guns, take a closer look here. Turreted guns, what does that give you opportunity to do? Well, it, it gives you the opportunity to... Um, Aim at anything you want because you've got two, three, sometimes four turrets on a ship. Each gun is independently aimable. And uh, when you've got that capability, what that does is it lets you um, aim at all sorts of different places, which the whole side-mounted thing never or never allowed. Right, so you put these two things together. What do you have for the U.S. Navy? One, they're facing this huge strategic change. And uh, that'd be enough already, as it is for most of us when we have to really repurpose what it is we do. But they had this huge technological change, which is they had to repurpose how they did whatever they were going to end up doing. Gene here again. I want to pause here for a moment and emphasize what Steve just mentioned. He just described the confluence of two very powerful forces that the U.S. Navy faced. A dramatic change in strategy, from being a coastal power to a transoceanic power, and a dramatic change in technology as the U.S. Navy went from a sail-powered fleet to one powered by steam, equipped with tremendous advances in aimed turreted artillery. This is a moment of tremendous disruption, where the mission goals are changed, as well as the strategy that achieves them, happening at the same time as a huge technology change. And if that sounds familiar, it should, because this is happening right now. When people talk about digital disruption, this is what they are referring to. Technology has dramatically changed the way we create value. Technology is no longer the back office ERP systems. It is the systems of engagement and the systems of innovation that allow us to find customers and deliver value to them quickly. The retail apocalypse, which has been going on for nearly a decade, as referenced by the Killer Bee story by the Nordstrom Board of Directors, as referenced earlier, has only accelerated as COVID-19 has decimated so much commerce at brick-and-mortar establishments. So many brands, as evidenced in the amazing DevOps Enterprise talks from Nike and more recently Adidas, are going direct to consumer, driving billions of dollars in revenue directly as opposed to going through more traditional retailers. So as Steve describes what the U.S. Navy's response was to this massive disruption in strategy and technology 100 years ago, compare and contrast that to how your organizations are responding to digital disruption today. Back to Steve. Now, at that moment, at that moment, the leadership of the United States Navy, these guys, they had a choice. Now, I just want to answer this, is that in 1900, who were the leaders of the United States Navy? Well, the leaders of the United States Navy were um, men. They were white men. They were Protestant men who had grown up with a sense of um, uh, elitism, classism, 
hierarchy, status, et cetera, et cetera. And you start thinking about what uh, folks who've got all those isms, you know, and then it's to their advantage, not to their disadvantage, but people with all those isms working for them do. The only way they do is they say, oh, well, you know, everybody else, that's a, that's a bunch of jerks. What do they know? We're going to, you know, we're going to do all the thinking here. We don't want to get our pretty hands dirty and uh, we'll do the thinking. We'll push out until what all those other folks should do. So that was a choice. That was a choice, which is they could have consolidated the thinking and the decision making to the Navy Yard in Washington, D.C. And uh, once they had thought through the strategic question, what are we going to do? And the technical, the technological question, how are we going to do it? They could have pushed instructions out to the Navy with the expectation that they push the instructions out. And what do they get in return? An aye, aye, sir, away we go. And that would have been the natural, the natural thing to do. But that's not what they did. Instead, those leaders with all the social, societal, economic advantage they had, when it came time to the question of uh, what do we do, how we do it, they got together and said, we got no idea what to do and how to do it. it it's so far beyond, so far beyond any experience we've had to allow us to approximate, analogize, extrapolate, et cetera. We got no idea. So what do they do? They say, you know what? We got to get uh, the distributed problem-solving capability of the whole Navy involved in this. And so they go through the series of exercises to push out to the fleet, to push out to individual uh, ship skippers. But ship skippers pushing out to their individual crews, problems like how do you how do you fire a gun? How do you aim a gun? How do you aim a gun in rolling seas? On and on. And uh, what did they want done? Not the aye aye sir, you know anchors away. What they wanted done in return was experimentation with the idea that whether the experiment worked or not, the lesson learned, the lesson learned would come back for consolidation, then synthesis, and then redistribution as a collective lesson learned as way better than anybody else has. All right. So anyway, where does that lead and how does that get operationalized? Well, they go out to the, uh, the, the, uh, they go out to the squadrons, the squadrons go out to the ships, and even on board the ships, the ship skippers go out to their crews and say, hey, you know, they handed us these guns and these weapons and these turrets, and they're wildly complex. And, uh, we, you know, hey, so uh, Chief Petty Officer, why don't you try a couple of different things with your gun turret crew? And the guys at the uh, stern, while you're up in the bow, they'll try some other things and on board the ship. We'll come up with some sort of synthesized, consolidated uh, lessons learned package. So when we go out and experiment and test and go through drills and exercises with our ship, you know, we got the collective best understanding of everybody on board the ship and not just what the captain thinks. Well, anyway, that, that, that was one round. Now, another round of this is um, you have these ships where you've now introduced really advanced power plants and really advanced navigation and really advanced weaponry and really advanced communication. You know what you've done? You've created the risk that you're going to fry the brain of the captain. Because back in the day, as sales is going around this way, that way, sailing around, you know, someone, hey, captain, here's what's happening. Oh, thank you. I'll think about that. I'll tell you what to do. Oh, captain, here's something else. Oh, think about it. And, and, and you get on, on board one of these uh, then modern ships and the amount of information flowing, if it goes to the captain, his brain's going to melt down. So the Navy invented this idea of a combat information center. And the idea was, 
have the information coming in from this division, this department, this division, this department, come into the combat information center where there would be a methodical way of absorbing, digesting, scrubbing, reinterpreting. So the information that went to the captain was only the things the captain needed to know to make captain decisions and other information, which wasn't captain decisions, it was department decisions or division decisions or watch station uh, decisions, that information will be parsed and go to the right places. Now, um, when this idea of a CIC, Combat Information Center, came up, guess what the, the Navy knew about the appropriate design and use of those things? Nothing, because they had never been designed and used before. And so what did the leadership of the Navy do? It was the same thing. They said, hey, you know, that's, that's a problem. We don't really understand how that thing works. So here, here's what we're going to do. We're going to push out to the ships the opportunity, the authority, the responsibility to experiment with those CICs. And uh, what we're asking is not that they use them right, because no one knows what right is. But what we ask them to do is use them creatively and capture the consequences of using them creatively this way or creatively that way or creatively some other way. And um, in fact, they gave so much authority to a ship captains that if a ship was still being built, the captain could go to the shipyard and talk to the engineers, the designers, the builders, and personalize. And, and think about it. We tend to think of the military, oh, well, that's highly standardized, command control, top down, da da da. Martinet, right? And I said, no, no, captain, look, you know, you're, you're a young guy and we're a bunch of old guys, but we want you to go to the shipyard and tell them how you want your CIC configured so you can run the experiments, the creative experiments that uh, only you can think about. I love this stuff. I've often seen the CIC portrayed in Tom Clancy novels on modern aircraft carriers or nuclear attack submarines, but never in the World War II context. Until I saw the just-released movie Greyhound on Disney+, Plus, starring Tom Hanks. It's based on the 1955 novel The Good Shepherd by C.S. Forrester. It's about a destroyer captain escorting a convoy of freighters crossing the Atlantic Ocean during World War II. And I loved it. In fact, I made my kids watch it with me twice. I was particularly blown away by how much the situational awareness of the battle against the German submarine task force centered around the captain, keeping mental track of targets, inbound torpedoes, other friendly destroyers, with information coming in from the CIC, as well as his own observations, such as inbound communications from the convoy commodore, ship lookouts, and his officers. I was struck by how adroit certain people had to be at trigonometry to keep track of the battle space in their head, and I had this feeling at times that the amount of information that the captain could process was nearing its limits. If it's accurate, it's such a neat way to appreciate the cognitive load of a World War II destroyer captain in battle. Okay, back to Steve as he talks about innovation not within just a ship, but across a group of ships. Now, anyway, um, this continues forward. So think about the scale we started at, which is getting the, uh, the petty officers and the, and the chiefs to figure out how to operate the crew within a gun turret. And then we go to the skippers and say, well, how do you coordinate the guns and everything else through the combat information center? Well, we got another unit of analysis, which is the task force. And you had this question then, um, now that you've got, so now think about the change, right? Because now that you've got all this advanced technology of communication, propulsion, armaments, et cetera, you get a lot of different kinds of ships. You got your battleships, you got your cruisers, you got your destroyers, et cetera. And the question is, how do you take all those pieces and put it into a meaningful whole, um, not hull, but whole, complete, so that uh, the pieces come together in a sum greater than the parts? 
And so again, now think about the uh, the dudes in the Washington Navy Yard who'd grown up with status and hierarchy and privilege and elitism. And uh, the question comes out of, so what do you want to do with these uh, task forces of disparate ships? And I said, well, you know what we think we should do? We don't know. We don't know. We've never done this before. So you know what we're going to do? We're going to run a series of, and I'll be careful on the wording here. We're going to run a series of exercises. I'm using little e there because that's not exactly what they called it. They said, you know what? If you want to project power across the Pacific and protect interests across the Pacific, and you're trying to do it with these brand new, diverse uh, sciences and technologies, you have a lot of problems because we don't know how to do that. And so from the 1920s through uh, the end of the 1930s, right into 1940, the United States Navy uh, ran these exercises, but it's very clear what they call it. It's very important what they call it. And they didn't call them exercises. Because exercises sounds like, um, I don't know, Gene writes up a plan, and then Steve has to look at the plan and say, oh, Gene, you know, I got the plan. I'm going to execute it. And I get graded on what, how well I adhere to the plan. But they didn't call them exercises. They called them problems. I think about what a problem is. The problem is we've got a situation, but, you know, we don't know what to do. Like, wow, if we're going to be um, transoceanic in the Atlantic and the Pacific, we might have to defend the Panama Canal for merchant shipping, for military shipping. Well, how do you de defend the Panama Canal? And everyone said, I don't, I don't know. So, well, you know, that's a problem. Go figure it out. And so what did they do in 1923? They send out uh, many, many ships and thousands and thousands of sailors said, you know what? Try to defend the Panama Canal and let us know what you did and how it worked. And then as you can see through these titles, they, they attack and defend the Panama Canal more than once. They try to figure out, well, geez, if you're going across the Pacific, a lot of little islands um, could be useful. You know, how, how do you secure an island? Everyone's I don't know. Well, that's a problem. Why don't you go find out? So 1931, it looks like the amphibious landings. Go try to figure out how you get sailors and machines. I'm sorry, get uh, soldiers and, and Marines off of ships and get them safely ashore so they can exert control. And it goes on and on and on. These uh, dozens of um, problems. And again, it's the same basic uh, philosophy. We've got a situation. We don't know what to do. Rather than trying to sit around and think through an answer based on, you know, like complete ignorance, what we're going to do instead is let people go and experiment, experiment in a distributed fashion. And what our job as the central folks is to pull in those lessons, synthesize those lessons, consolidate those lessons, and go back with what the collective wisdom is versus the individual wisdom. Now, where does that lead us? Is that um, you've had this series of, um, Fleet problems all through the 20s and the 30s. All right, so now let's bring us back to Midway. What's going on? Get back to Midway. And the Japanese send uh, their armada out to Midway Island to lure the U.S. Now think about it. The U.S., if you have to think about the um, their battle plans for Midway, you know, would have depended on battleships. One would have assumed the battleships show up, but they didn't. And so the Japanese are thinking, look, you know, they would have been planning on aircraft carrier plus battleships. They don't have the battleships. We're going to clean the, you know, just clean their clocks. Now, this gets back to um, the part about when did the U.S. win 1895 through this distributed experimentation approach to 
problems with no way to think you through to the answer. But anyway, these guys who wrote Shattered Sword, how'd they come up with 1929? So this story goes something like this. They say, he, 1929. By 1929, the Japanese Admiralty, the Japanese Admiralty had decided, they decided, think about the arrogance of that. In 1929, they had decided how war would be waged against the United States in the Pacific Ocean. Now, it's not clear that they had sort of, um, I don't know, had a conversation with the Americans. Say, oh, well, what have you decided about war in the Pacific? No, but the Japanese Admiralty had decided how war would be waged in 19, they had made their decision in 1929 about how war might be waged in the 1930s, 1940s. They decided. But anyway, here's the thing about making a decision like that. Once you decide that this is what's gonna happen, everything else flows out of that decision. How do you design an aircraft carrier? Well, it's got to be compliant with the decision of how we're going to wage war. How do you design an aircraft? Boom, compliant with the decision we made in 1929. How do you think through things like um, fueling, arming, rearming, refueling, launching, recovery, relaunching, repurposing, navigation, communication, reconnaissance? Well, you know, we got, we've got, and I mean this uh, pun intended, we got an anchor point. We made a decision in 1929 how war will be fought. All right, now, carrying this through a little bit further. So um, these guys, uh, Parshall and Tully, they describe what happened here based on this 1929 decision. So going into um, Battle of Midway, the Japanese admirals had written a battle plan, and the battle plan detailed what was supposed to happen. So they decided to do a war game, you know, kind of little tabletop, little wooden ships and whatnot. They would decide to do a war game to rehearse for the Battle of Midway. Gene here. At this point, Steve recounts the story of the tabletop exercise that the Japanese admirals do, firing the junior officers that are role-playing the American adversaries, which he told us about in his 2019 talk. Let's jump ahead 90 seconds, where he talks about the contrast between the naval doctrine and plan that the Japanese admiralty created versus the ones that the Americans created. What's happening on the U.S. side is that uh, they had gone through these uh, exercises, these problems in the 20s and 30s. So they didn't have a battle plan. They had a portfolio. And when they didn't have battleships, they said, well, let's flip a page here and uh, let's see what we got in our book. Well, you know, page one we can't use, but oh, this one this one will work. Let's go with that one. And uh, not only that, in terms of having plays to pull upon, they had a mindset. What was their mindset? You know, life is going to throw you situations where, you know what, you just don't have the answer. You may not even know what the problem is, but you can go out and you can experiment and learn as quickly as you can. So uh, the Japanese Navy shows up at Midway Island. And you could argue they had a bigger fleet and they had more planes and certainly had more experience in terms of pilots and sailors. But they showed up to wage war against the Navy that innate, innate, in, in, in the fiber of its being was... Uh, this uh, certainty that they didn't necessarily have a right answer, but if they behaved in a certain way, an exploratory and experiment, uh, an exploratory and experimental way, they could discover the right answer. Anyway, the Japanese Navy showed up at Midway and they got their clock kicked because they showed up and they fought folks who, um, rather than have this compliant form of leadership over the last 20, 30, 40 years, they uh, showed up with a Navy that had had this very engaging, experimental, distributed, problem-solving culture, you know, and, and smart beats stupid just about every day. So anyway, folks, um, 
I'll hold to uh, this storyline that um, when in doubt, having a way to get um, smarter, faster, that's going to win. If not every time, it's going to win most times. And when it wins, it's going to win by a whole lot. Um, look, we've uh, spent uh, the better part of the last 20 years trying to change behavior from this command control compliance audit approach to uh, a much more uh, distributed, engaged, experimental discovery approach. So anyone who wants to partner on trying that out, wherever you happen to be, let us know. Uh, we've created some software tools to kind of help that behavioral change in certain circumstances. So if you're curious as to what, what we've cooked up around that, get in touch. But uh, let me just offer uh, this uh, last uh, encouragement is uh, when in doubt, do. Because if you're in doubt, it's because you don't know. But if you do something, you might learn something. And learning something's a good thing. So uh, that's what I got to say and over and out. Bye-bye. Wow, those talks are so great. I have two observations I'd like to share with you. The first is around distributed learning. When it comes to digital disruption, at least around the use of cloud, it's not the top leaders that figure out how to exploit these new technologies. It's senior engineers and architects, managers, senior managers and directors, trying to figure out what works and how do we make a bigger, more material impact on our organization. In other words, it's not the admirals, it's the chief petty officers, the lieutenants, and the younger leaders who really figure out how to pioneer these new practices that allow us to win in the marketplace. In the Unicorn Project, the protagonists have to stage a rebellion in order to bring in a better way of working, to bring in new technologies to displace the old. And those stories were really inspired by the DevOps Enterprise community. It is this rebellion having to fight an ancient, powerful order who is quite happy to keep doing things the way we've always done it. In a more just world where there is a culture of dynamic, distributed learning, it wouldn't require so much courage and heroism to bring these great ideas to bear. Secondly, I wanted to mention something that I've been reflecting on for weeks. What I learned in the last three months leading up to running our first virtual conference was that it was a totally different problem than running a physical conference. Bob Bejan, a corporate vice president at Microsoft, said, live in-person events are a theatrical experience, whereas virtual events are a cinematic experience. And we really doubled down on that premise. We pre-recorded all of the presentations, and we thought about how we would do programming differently, as if we were producing a TV show or a movie. And one of my big learnings is that the dominant architecture of how one puts on a great live conference is very, very different to how one puts on a great virtual conference. I'll give you one example. In a physical conference, I never interacted with the video editors. They were the people that we gave all our footage to after the conference, and somehow they would eventually find their way on to YouTube. However, in an online conference, it was the other way around. Everything had to be recorded beforehand and edited. And I was working with the video editors all the time. And in many cases, I couldn't wait for them to complete the work overnight. So suddenly I'm using tools I've never used before in my entire career, like video editors and recording programs. Over the last couple of months, I've often felt so fortunate to have learned about Steve's notion of structure and dynamics before the global pandemic. It is what likely saved us from entering into a potentially very problematic contract with our AV production company, which had very precisely defined roles and responsibilities. It's what made me realize that we didn't understand what problems we were going to be facing. So we needed cross-functional teams who were full of people who are willing to learn new things. 
the notion of cross-functional teams, T-shaped people. These are things that we talk a lot about in our DevOps community, but it was incredible to stumble upon these lessons in a totally different context of producing uh, our first virtual conference. It's what made me realize how much we needed cross-functional people who with very wide skill sets, who are willing to learn new things, where so much of the problem was unknown. Not only didn't we know what the right processes were, we didn't even know what the right problems were until we encountered them. And like Steve advised, we kept trying things, reaching out to experts and friends to help us get smarter, faster, and in the end, deliver what I believe was a fantastically successful online event, which many people said was the best they've ever experienced. And part of that was being acutely aware of and revisiting the structure we were creating, acutely aware of the sometimes bad dynamics that resulted from the decisions we made. I'll explore this further in a blog post I intend to post sometime in the next week. So thank you so much for listening to today's episode. I hope you enjoyed them as much as I did. As a bonus to you, you can watch Dr. Steven Spears' amazing 2020 London virtual presentation at itrevolution.com slash watch Spear just by entering your email address. Directions will be posted in the show notes. Okay, I hope you loved listening to the last two Idealcasts with Steve because I've got one more for you next week. In the next episode, I'm going to play a follow-up interview I did with Steve where I got to ask him some even more basic questions I was left wondering about after my first interview, continuing some of the explorations that I started with Elizabeth Hendrickson. Such as, is it really true that leaders have fewer and fewer knobs to turn as they get higher up in the organization, and what are the implications? And why do we see this ever-increasing complexity and need for specialization in the world, and what does it mean for leaders? And we talk about and explore further the structure and dynamics of the MIT Beer Game. See you next week.